Would you turn to James? James chapter 1 is where we'll be tonight. It's toward the back of the Bible. If you don't have one, that's okay. There's one in front of you. Or if you've got it on your phone, you can swipe there. We're going to be in James. We started a new series in this letter last week. And it's called James, Live Your Faith. James is everybody's mentor for an everyday faith. You read James's letter, and you see that his teaching is easier to understand than it is to live. But James and myself and Jesus, I think, are all convinced that our faith is actually livable. I think one of the greatest tragedies of the American Christian experience, if you go to a church that is one that takes seriously Jesus' words, James's words, one of the great tragedies is that we can get a sense that this life is just too far out of reach. It's too high on the shelf. I know I've told you, church, on a few occasions to forgive me when I, in this space or in a class or in any other time, have contributed to that. If talking about prayer, you find it impossible to pray, or if talking about disciplines like solitude or uh, silence, if in talking about those things, it's come across as unattainable, really please forgive me. If I'm saying that, it's like what we're singing, and it's just that we're trying to remind ourselves that this is what life with Jesus looks like. But when it seems unattainable, that's where those two words, with Jesus, are so vital. Because Jesus said His yoke is easy and His burden is light. And when it feels hard and it feels heavy, it's because we're not doing it with Him. We're doing it in our own strength, and we're working for Him, not with Him. Or we're trying to measure up to some sense of who we ought to be, that we lose sight of the unconditional, furious love that God has for who you actually are. Because who you want to be doesn't exist. And it may never exist. This is what I had to come to grips with. The biggest struggle in my ministry is measuring the 30-year-old version of myself against the imaginary 60-year-old version of myself. And that 60-year-old version will never exist in my, the way he exists in my mind. And so James is a mentor to remind us that this faith is livable. Everything Jesus said, everything James says, is livable. When we do it with Jesus. And when we totally screw it up and make a mess of it, we're still with Jesus. He doesn't unadopt us from the Lamb's Book of Life that you heard in that Baptist church that you're still recovering from. No offense, Baptist people. I was ordained in a Southern Baptist church and here we worship in a Baptist church. I'm just seeing if you're awake. This faith is livable, and James is an experienced, grizzled, weathered travel guide to get us through this really freaking hard journey with Jesus. And so I'm glad to have James with us, especially because these verses that we've looked at tonight and, we'll look at, and we looked at last week, 
they're all centering on trials and struggles and all the things that we prayed for earlier that we were singing about and that you're living through now. He doesn't just talk about them. He's trying to encourage us as a travel guide, as a mentor, to say, but this is how you should respond to it. So that's what we're looking at tonight. Where we left off last week, we didn't get as far as I wanted to last week, but I think it's okay. Because tonight we're going to start in verse 9 of chapter 1. And what he gives, still loosely related to trials, is a reminder to the poor folks in the very thick of trials. He gives a reminder to them and then he gives a warning to the rich who I'm convinced in this passage are the source of these poor folks trials. Look with me in verse chapter uh, excuse me in verse 9 chapter 1. Believers in humble circumstances ought to take pride in their high position. Now, believers in humble circumstances aren't just the people who are super humble. Why? Well, he's going to contrast them in verse 10 with, but the rich should take pride in their humiliation. So he's talking about the poor and the rich, and he's talking about a very goofy idea that the poor should be proud that they're in a high position. And the rich should be proud or boast that they're in a humble or humiliated position. And this is very strange. It's strange to the first hearers of such a thing as well. And so what he's saying as he continues on is that poor folks remember this. Hold on because God has honored you. This is what he's after, I think, in this take pride in your high position. James, who is the bishop of the Jerusalem church, who oversees all these new communities of poor, uh, persecuted Jewish Christians who've attached themselves to the Jewish Messiah, who was humiliated on the cross, but vindicated by the resurrection. They are in these communities. They're in this new faith, in this new way, in this new creation that God's opened up. And he's saying, I know it stinks now. But you have aligned yourself, you've hitched your wagon to the right guy. And take pride in the fact that God sees you as blessed. Remember, I told you the words of Jesus when he said, Blessed are the poor, blessed are those who mourn, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, blessed are the ones who have no whiff of religion, blessed are the ones who want so badly for God to move but they don't see it happen because the kingdom of God is for you. He's not saying, Jesus or James, try to be like these people because that would be the not with Jesus kind of life. That would be the kind of life that you want to do in your own strength. That would be like, well, if I want to be close to God, I just need to sell everything I have. No, no, no. That's getting the cart before the horse. If you're like God first with him, then maybe you'll sell everything. You don't sell everything to get to God. You sell everything because it shows out this transformation that God has worked out in your heart. So he's saying the kingdom of God is at hand to the kinds of people who are holding on to this humiliated Messiah, even in the face of persecution. And the persecution that may be happening in this strange little paragraph is this warning to the rich. So he says poor folks hold on, and then he says rich folks watch out. Now, we have a choice to make. 
you have a 50-50 shot. Who are the rich folks that James is talking to? You have two choices. You think, you, you know, take a guess. If he's writing to churches, you have two choices. He's writing to rich folks within the church, or he's writing to rich folks outside of the church. He's kind of saying this sarcastically. This is a choice we have to make. I think verse 11 kind of gets us some of the way there. When he's talking about the rich who should boast in their humiliation, he's saying, rich folks, watch out. You're going to be humbled, or you are humbled. Why? Since they will pass away like a wild flower. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the plant. Its blossom falls and its beauty is destroyed. In the same way, watch this. He says, the rich, not the riches. He's not saying your bank account. He's saying the rich will fade away even while they go about their business. That is to say, like, it'll hit them like out of the blue. As they go on and they're merrily walking along, boom, watch out. Because these kinds of things don't last forever. So I'm just taking a stab at one or both. There's good reasons to think either. But I think who are the rich? They are the rich that are outside of the church. And they are the ones, as James will say later on in his letter, who are dragging these poor folks into court. They're dragging them into the synagogues. They're bringing them before the people and saying, look at these folks who've aligned themselves with the humiliated Messiah. And he says, watch out rich. If you've hitched your wagon to your status in this life, your status in the life to come will be one that is withered away just as quickly as your riches come and just as quickly as they can go. So this is a reminder to the poor in the midst of trial. You may be persecuted and on the bottom rung of the ladder now, but take heart, hold on, be proud, and view your status the way God views your status, which is upside down. So I think in this strange passage, really the big idea is that we need to view things from God's perspective. And God's perspective is crucial to our journey with Jesus. Why? Because as we've talked so much and we talked about last week, when, not if, when the trials, the testings come, we need to broaden our view because so often what happens is our circumstance dictates our reality. Our circumstance, the mountain before us, is so close, is so painful, is so powerful, it obstructs our field of vision, and it's a call, whether you're talking about rich or poor, or whether you're talking about trials or temptations like we're going to tonight, we need to broaden our perspective. And so last week, this is why he says, you need to ask for wisdom, and then he says, and remember that God is going to give it like the lunch lady who doesn't care about charging for seconds. He gives generously because he's good. And so he says, if anybody would ask, God will give it. He's not stingy. But this is why we need to remind ourselves continually that God is good because when our circumstances dictate our reality, we look at the mountain, we look at the struggle, and we say, surely God is not good. So ask for wisdom to step out and back and see things from the long view. And then you'll see two things. God is with you and he can do something about it. And so you pray for wisdom to discern where he's at in the midst of it. Because what happens is if you stare solely at the struggle, if you stare solely at the trial, 
a temptation from within begins to happen. A temptation from within begins to stir up because you're tempted to not view things from God's perspective, from a wise perspective. You're tempted to view things from the way that your own heart and emotions are running the show. And you say, surely God is not good. Now, not to totally rehash last week, but I want to be on record again to say the trials that's been in view thus far are trials that are external to the person. And I want to say, again, as unequivocally as I can, God is sovereign, yes. And that is a stupid church word. Excuse me. I, forgive me for saying stupid. A, a, I, I don't know why I said that. Sorry. <laughs> um, we're going to talk about taming the tongue in a few weeks. <laughs> it's, a, it's a church word that we use to say, yeah, it's overused is what I mean. And it's a way of like force-fielding everybody to say God is sovereign, and it leads you to say goofy things like God has a plan. And it leads you to say goofy things when you go to funerals or to hospital rooms, and you say, hey, God is up to something in this. And God is sovereign, but what that means is that there is not one thing in this world that he's not trying to work out toward redemption and reconciliation. But God is not the author of evil. And scripture stops short, I believe, every time it's saying that God is the author of evil. So when these trials come from the outside, we are tempted to say God's behind it. Why? Because perhaps we've been tempted to think that God is not good. Are you with me now? So James then begins this subtle shift. We looked at verse 12 last week, so let's shift to verse 13. He begins to engage with the kinds of people who are looking at the trials outside, and they begin to sense the trial or temptation inside. So he wants to caution these folks to say, when tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. So James, who's been down the road, he's our mentor for our everyday faith. He wants to say, when trials have come your way, take heart and look up, view things from God's perspective, so that when you're tempted, you will have prayed for wisdom. God would have given you that wisdom generously so that you would not say something as goofy as, God is tempting me. So he shifts in the same kind of root word for trial and temptation. And he does so like this in the next passage. He shifts from this idea of testing or trials to temptation. And the difference, if you look back in verse 12, is that the kinds of external trials that come into our life that are, may not be from God, but those trials, it's God's hope that he would be with us and we would see things from his perspective that we could persevere or remain under and because God's faithfulness is there throughout and our growth is on the other side. So he's shifting from that test or that trial whose source is outside of us and it may be even outside of God's will. Are you with me? We're wading into some weird waters. So I'm uh, not weird. Why can't I control my tongue? some difficult waters, but I want to be very clear about this. It may not be from God, but James is granting that it's something outside of us. But it yields strength. Will you go to that comparison, Jason? It yields in us strength. It yields in us maturity. This is what we saw last week. 
And the result then is that we would be the kinds of people who can make a difference for this world, for God's kingdom. So these are the external things that God allows, though he may not cause, into our life. Look at Job. Job was beat up six ways to Sunday by Satan, by the opposer, by the accuser, by forces beyond his control. But what we see in this sneak peek, in the very beginning of that letter, Job, God allowed this to happen. And so that may be something that we're going to wrestle with for the rest of our life, but I want to say and settle, God is not the cause of the kinds of things He is working in this world to undo. And this is why I say unequivocally, you know, we don't celebrate cancer. And we don't have some kind of bankrupt theology that says God gave me cancer for His glory. Because I see Jesus, who is the exact image and representation of God, who is the image of the invisible God, his whole ministry working to undo the cause and, and, and uh, the chaos of sin. And that includes physical sickness. And if it's not going to make it into God's new heavens and new earth, I'm pretty sure that God isn't sending it today in this heaven and this earth. Are you with me? So what's in view here as he shifts from trials, as he shifts from temptations, and he begins to say, okay, so no one should say God is tempting me. And what he means by tempting is the source is inside of us. Look what he says in verse 14. Each person is tempted when they're dragged away by what? Their own evil desire and enticed. James is a great mentor because when you begin to look at that trial and you begin to be tempted to say God is not good or God is behind this, he says, no, 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 no. Whenever these kinds of things are tempting you to jump ship from God or to lash out at the other person because of this trial, God wants your growth and goodness out of it. Your temptation that's causing you to self-destruct, your temptation that's causing you to lash out in violence, your temptation to say God is not good, that is not generating from God. That's coming from your own heart that is still in the process of being worked into the image of God. Are you with me? So the source is inside of your heart. Then what he says, after you're dragged away and enticed, verse 15, he says, then after this desire is conceived, it gives birth to what? Sin. So these temptations, they're going to begin to have this really, he uses this really explicit language of this dark kind of family tree that starts with desire, and we'll go back and talk about desire in a second, but it yields sin. When they get pregnant, their baby is sin. And then this baby sin grows up, and when it's full grown, he says in 15, it gives birth to what? Death. So the result of these kinds of internal struggles, if unchecked, if not worked out with wisdom and worked out with Jesus, it just spirals out of control and the end game in this dark, twisted kind of family tree is death. Y'all remember the famous verse that Paul uses, the wages of sin is death. So what James is after here is a life and death type of scenario. 
And he's talking about a life and death type of scenario because the trials that he's talking about are life and death situations. So when these things come, James's wisdom to us is this. Broaden the perspective. See things as God sees them and remain and hold on and try to check yourself and remind yourself that God is good. To jump back to verse 13, no one should say God is tempting me. Why? Because God can't be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. He's basically saying God has nothing to do with evil. And if I could add, the only thing God has to do with evil is that he's working against it, that he will judge it, and that he is right now trying to work and renew good from it. This is the teaching of the New Testament. And this is what James is sorting through and saying, don't let your circumstances dictate your reality. Don't believe that God is this source of evil and that he's up there trying to tempt you to sin. So that's when he reminds us in verse 14, this is coming from your own place. Bud and I were talking this week, I mentioned last week, that Bud, Robin, Kathy, and myself are sitting down each week to kind of hash out this text because I don't have all the answers. And I can't read all the books. And I can't have all the experiences. So everything that I'm saying, I'm just crowdsourcing from Robin Craddock and Kathy Kiesler and Pastor Bud. And one of the things I love that struck me when we get to this passage and we say, okay, God isn't tempting us. He's not the originator of these kinds of tests. He doesn't have anything to do with evil in that he's sending it our way. Okay, now he said, can we just imagine if we really let ourselves believe that God is the one that's sending this kind of uh, temptations or evils into our life, can we imagine like God on a rowboat up there in the heavens, whatever that means, with a fishing pole, and he's baiting it with a temptation to lash out at that person who is your greatest source of struggle? Can you see him baiting it with that, you know, adulterous relationship that is just out of your reach? If you would just grab it. Can we imagine that God is putting uh, those kinds of uh, drugs and substances that are continually causing you and entangling you and leading you more and more into self-destruction? Can we imagine that God is just baiting this hook and dropping it down to us for his glory or because he has a plan? And now maybe some of us are thinking, well, what about the Lord's Prayer when, when Jesus says, lead us not into temptation? Well, what, what Jesus is teaching us to pray is, lead us not into a time of testing or trial and deliver us from the evil one. And what James is after here is to say, these kind of desires that are evil don't come from God on the rowboat testing us. The kind of testing that God does or the kind of testing that Jesus was talking about is the kinds of tests that are for our growth. Are we still seeing the difference? Because what is in view here is this evil desire and then you're enticed. Now desire, it starts here on that family tree. That is not bad on its own. 
Desire, hear me, is not bad on its own. Your desire for food, hear me, keeps you alive. Your desire to drink keeps you alive. Now your desire to drink substances that can remove your faculties to a point where it becomes the desire overtakes your will becomes evil desire. Now, the desire for food that becomes an end of itself where you continue to eat, continue to eat, continue to eat, and it's leading you further and further down the road to self-destruction and death, that becomes an evil desire. Desires are not bad. Sexual desires are not bad. Hear me, sexual desires are not bad. And when we're looking at desires, when that desire turns the other into an object then it becomes evil desire. When that desire leads you to pornography, to short-circuit the design that is life-giving and beautiful in a safe confines of marriage, when that desire becomes your Lord and it becomes compulsive and it becomes just like any other kind of substance, it becomes an will-overtaker, then we're talking about evil desires. And then James is talking about, through experience, through these people in his community, just like people in our community, when these desires happen, if left unchecked, when they become the end, we're enticed, we're dragged away, and we continue to spiral out, spiral out, until we believe, and even physically, we have no capacity to stop. And then desire has become our Lord and not Jesus. But Jesus continues to be our Lord, whether we believe it or not, and He wants to liberate us from the chains of addiction and bondage. He wants to give us wisdom at the front end of this to where we might throw off the sin that wants to entangle us, and He says, hey, this desire you have for sexuality is good. It's like a river, though, that needs to be channeled in a healthy direction. And he wants you to see the desire at the front end and say, I'm not going to let this become my Lord. I'm going to broaden my perspective and to continue to use the example of pornography. I might even begin to see this other as someone who's made in the image of God and who is not mine to use. And it may be a mind trick for the first little while. But if you continue to ask for wisdom, you continue to see desires as good, but they need to be directed in a healthy direction, it may not become a mind trick. It may become the kind of life that Jesus has for you and wants to work out in you if you would surrender to him at the first stage, not the end. Because the end is death. And I think one of the things that's been supremely helpful for me is these kind of gut check reminders because, man, I, if not careful, will be just as enticed and dragged away as the kind of person he's describing here if I'm not careful. And so James Bryan Smith, who's an author that we're, Kathy Kiesler will probably teach a class, or not probably, she's going to teach a class this fall on one of his books. We thought we'd get through the unhurried retreat first, and then we'll start promoting that. That'll start in October. And it's called The Good and Beautiful God. And what he does in this book is he takes uh, a lot of the theology of Dallas Willard, because he was buddies with Dallas Willard. And he takes a lot of the practices by Richard Foster, because he was buddies with Richard Foster. And he makes them, like James, livable. 
James Brian Smith is like James, the author of this letter, a mentor for us in everyday life. And one of the things that is woven throughout that book is two kinds of reminders when we're dealing with desires and sins and the things that want to drag us away from Him. The first is to remember your kingdom identity. And he has in this book a practice, wake up in the morning, look yourself in the mirror, and say, I am one in whom Christ dwells. And so you take yourself to the mirror, and you take all your insecurities, and you take all your kind of self-pity or self-hatred, and you say that, and you laugh at yourself the first time because you're talking to yourself in the mirror, and you say it, Until maybe you begin to believe it. Because if you're in Christ, Christ is in you. And you're beloved more than you can let yourself imagine. And then that's your identity. And begin to live in that identity. And then the second reminder that he says woven throughout that book is a kingdom awareness. I am in the strong and unshakable kingdom of God. So when the trial comes on your doorstep and it's seated, it's seated right there, you broaden your perspective and you say, I am one in whom Christ dwells. He's with me. And I am in the unshakable kingdom of God. This may be a storm that has come to my doorstep, but God can be counted on, as we've just sang, to hold you and to walk with you through the storm. And the thing about storms is that sometimes He will calm them. But sometimes He might ask us to step out and walk on the waves. But either way, we need to keep our eyes on Him. And either way, we need to not let ourselves be deceived that God is after our suffering. God is with us in the midst of our suffering. We need not think that God is after this pain. He wants to be there to alleviate our pain. And if you're struggling to believe me, help remind me when I'm struggling to believe that too. Because I want to remind you that God is good. And I remind you that He has nothing to do with temptation. And remind you that He gives you every good thing you've got. He says in verse 16, Don't be deceived, my dear brothers and sisters. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. God gives good things because it's who He is, and He won't change in His goodness. This verse, verse 17, is in the Eastern Orthodox. Y'all know there's the Catholic and then there's the Eastern Orthodox. We got a couple Eastern Orthodox churches in our area. An Ethiopian Orthodox church just moved in down the street to that YMCA. And they've been working hard and making that thing ready to go. But one of the things in their liturgy is this verse. Every good and perfect gift comes from above. And it's said in their worship services, at the end. 
And it's beautiful because I just imagine all these Orthodox folks walking out into the world, but they hear ringing in their ears, every good gift is from God. So perhaps that would lead you to an awareness that God is good and everything good that I have is from Him. And so if sin and temptation leads to death, look at verse 18 as we draw to a close. This God who gives good gifts chose to give us birth. So right, desire and all these things when it's conceived and all this, it brings, gives birth to death. God chose to give us birth through the word of truth. That's a way of saying gospel, the good news that has brought us out of the kingdom of this world and the kingdom of death into the kingdom of God's world and to the kingdom of life. Why? So that we might be a kind of first fruits of all he created. That word first fruits is like the first offering that people would bring from the harvest and they'd give it to the temple and they'd give it as a sign that more is to come. And so God has set in motion this community of adopted folks and there's more to come if we're the first fruits. And I think that's good news for our church as we transition from Providence Community Church to the neighborhood church. And I love that we were kind of forced to do it because there's so much, I think, hope and excitement and energy to who God has formed us and is forming us to be. But the reality is there are more people that I believe God wants to adopt And he might just do it through us. And we might live into the name that we've taken for ourselves to where we would actually bless this actual neighborhood and the actual neighborhoods in which you live. And the cool thing about neighborhoods is that you don't really choose who comes and lives next to you. It just happens. But that's an opportunity for us to say, I think we might be the first fruits, but there's more to come. Not because I want a thousand people here so that we can feel really cool and awesome and get some better lights for Freeman Heights that we love. It's because I just believe that there is more to come. And the more to come, to broaden our view, is that we're part of this new creation now. And then when the trials come and death comes to our doorstep and illness comes to our doorstep and brokenness, broken relationships come to our doorstep, may we be reminded that God is still at work. He's rescuing us. He's reconciling the world. And that His will, if not perfectly now, will be perfectly at the end of this age. Come and His goodness and His love will restore us, will renew us, and death will not be the end. And so tonight we'll close with these four reminders I hope we've seen tonight about God. He has nothing to do with temptation. Number two, He gives every good gift we've got. And then number three, God doesn't change in His goodness. And then God has formed us into a community of new creation. And may we remember that the new creation has come and it is coming. Let's pray. God, you're so good to us. 
I just pray that we would believe that more and more. And that we wouldn't just believe it, but it would be worked out into our lives. It would be worked out into our vision. That it would be worked out into our relationships. And it would be worked out in the very midst of the storms. Lord, I pray for Amy. I pray for others. I pray for wisdom to sense that they need to just hold on because you're going to calm the storm. Or Lord, I pray for wisdom that they need to step out, keep their eyes on you, and walk on the waves in the middle of it. I pray, Lord, that you are our shepherd to the sheep like me who have gone astray. I pray that you would lead us to green pastures, that you would nurse us back to health, that you would nurse us back to life, that you would make us lie down when desires want to get the best of us. Lord, I pray for deliverance and release to the captives in this room tonight, to the captives that we're holding in our hearts that we know because the sin that easily entangles is never far from us. It's never far from the ones we love. So Lord, we pray in the name of Jesus, your deliverance, your freedom. We pray that we would see the first fruits in our lives this week. So we pray knowing that you can and we're asking God that you will. We pray that you would just remind us of your love and your goodness, even as we go from this place, as we come to the table, and as we see you in one another. We ask all this in the name of Jesus, our King. Amen. Tonight's benediction is a prayer from Walter Brueggemann. In the midst of all the pushing and shoving among us, in the world and in the church, propelled by anxiety and acted as brutality, you have planted yourself in all your fidelity. You have placed yourself among us in steadfastness and abiding care, present in the day, alert in the night, making us all safe and noticed and cared for. So evidence your fidelity as to curb our anxiety, as to restrain our brutality, as to overcome our alienation. By your fidelity, renew us, renew church, renew city, renew, renew world. Give us the safety to love you fully, to love neighbor well in glad obedience. Amen. Go in peace.